And it is What's Involved. So good to have you along with us. A special guest uh, this time. Somebody I've been looking forward to speaking to ever since the book landed on my desk. So let's say welcome to you, Norma Young. Hi, David, and thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and a privilege. Norma, so you've, you've got a book uh, that, that, as I said, landed up on my table, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play open cards with you and, and be honest. I get quite a few books, and when I do, I kind of get into them and, and I sort of read them as, as quickly as I can. Unfortunately, I didn't do that with this book because it hooked me right from the beginning. And, and the way that you put it together was, was absolutely fantastic. So I haven't finished it yet, um, I'm ashamed to say, but I am enjoying every last second of it. So before we get into that, tell me a bit about Norma. Give me a little bit about, you know, where were you born, school, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, sure. Um, so my name is Norma. I currently live in Johannesburg, but I was born in Durban and lived in Durban for the first 21 years of my life. I went to school uh, in Kloof at a wonderful school called St. Mary's and lived and my family still does live in Claremont. And yeah, I had sort of a regular black middle class township uh, childhood and then uh, accidentally discovered journalism. I had been an avid netball player when I was in school and had these illustrious dreams of becoming a professional netball player in my matric year that December. Unfortunately, couldn't get funding together to go for national playoffs. I'd made the KZN under 19 team, but couldn't now go and compete to hopefully land a spot in the SA under 19 team. And with that, my hopes for a sports scholarship fell through. And in a mad panic, I mean, I hadn't thought of anything other than netball in terms of what I was going to do after school. So I suddenly found myself in January of uh, the year after matric scrambling to try and figure out now what do I do if I'm not going to be able to pursue the professional sports uh, career and in that scramble one of the courses that I realized I qualified for was PR and journalism and uh, they still had space open and I thought well let me register for this while I'm trying to figure out how to get back into the netball world and Needless to say, I ended up playing netball on the side and working full-time as a journalist for the past almost two decades. And uh, yeah, it's been a wonderful, fortuitous outcoming that at the time had left me very stressed, but I now see the providence and how things have worked out. So I've been working as a journalist, I've worked in print and in broadcasting, and uh, yeah, last year became a first-time author. I think that's that's an, an absolutely fascinating story because it's it's kind of when I read the book and I see your your journalistic career, I'm like, well, and I netball journalism. I'm very glad journalism won out in the end. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you've you've been on ENCA. Your your writings have been published by places like City Press, Mail and Guardian. Um, there's there's a whole bunch of it. So. With what you were doing and, and, and why the book? How did the book come about? Is this something that you just because I'm always amazed by people who can uh, get down and write a book. So did 
Did you have plans of doing this? Did it happen? How did it come about? I did have plans of writing a book. I mean, I just shared with you around how my focus had been around sports and specifically netball. When I look back at my school career, I was always involved in some form of uh, writing. I joined the school newspaper team. I remember when I was in, then it was called Standard One, I had finished the books that I'd taken out for, I think it was the June school holidays, and felt frustrated that I didn't really have anything else left to read. And so I decided to write myself something that after I'd finished writing, I would then have the pleasure of reading. And those little moments at the time when they're viewed in isolation were perhaps passing interest. But now when I look back, I, I see those seeds being planted and almost these like proverbial 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell writes about uh, in terms of honing and developing the skills and the craft of writing. Fast forward then to the past couple of years in my career as a journalist, I, in working in both print and broadcasting, realized that I have an interest in print that just is abiding. There, there's something, uh, a form of alchemy that I experience, a form of flow that I, I enter into when I'm writing. And so long before I had the idea for what I'd write about, I had set the intention that I wanted to become an author and started and stopped a number of different books in the past couple of years. And it was only really last year that I started writing and stopped once I'd finished, I think because the the topic was something that reflects my own personal struggle. And I think that's why I was able to not just start the book, but actually complete it because the book is about the tensions that I was experiencing as someone who considers themselves privileged, but at the same time has come from poverty and sees so much poverty around them. So researching the content for the book and the actual process of writing was with myself in mind. I, I am the almost like the primary target market. The book is is was intended for me to have a record of my learnings and the insights and knowledge of experts and something that I could refer to when I found myself grappling around what do I do and how do I address the guilt that I feel for all that I have when there's so much need around me. I think that's why I was able to to finish the book because it, it solved an issue and a problem and a frustration that I was dealing with personally. Okay, now let's let's just get into a little bit of, of the book. The first thing that that caught my attention because I was like, huh, is the title of the book, We Need More Tables. And then it goes on to say, Navigating Privilege in the Face of Poverty. Why that title? Why do we need more tables? The title was sparked from an idea of how we reference tables in our modern society. We have phrases like, you know, everyone must get a seat at the table. This uh, illustration of leaning in when you're sitting at the table. And I wanted to present and offer a an extension of many of those common sayings, but instead of 
gathering more people at one table. The idea was that we need more tables so that more people can sit at more tables. And the premise ostensibly is that if I as an individual who considers themselves privileged can figure out ways to build and give and share tables, we can make moves towards reducing and alleviating poverty rather than all of us trying to share that one proverbial table. The idea is that we actually need more tables so that more people can sit at more tables and at those tables be able to make decisions, feed themselves, uh, dream, and all the other normal, wonderful, everyday life functions that we get to indulge in at our tables. And and that is, it's, it's such... A good analogy in, in terms of what you've said. And, and I, I keep on thinking, you know, back to even sort of negotiating, you know, sitting around a table together, talking about things because a table, um, and, and I know in my home, you know, sitting around the, the, the kitchen table, that's, that's kind of where all of the, the, the conversation and the deep meaningful stuff happens. So uh, a great analogy. And I'm so glad to have you on the show because one of the things that, that I firmly, firmly believe in is that we as South Africans can sort out our problems, our differences, if we sit and learn more about each other and, and talk to each other. What is to me still heartbreaking and why this book has, has really affected me to date is the fact that there is so much, that, you know, the, the, the difference between the haves and the have-nots it's not a small gap. It's a monster big gap. You talk about that in the book as well. And I'd like to dive in to a little more about uh, what is in the book uh, when we come back. It is what's involved. My special guest is Norma Young, author of We Need More Tables, Navigating Privilege in the Face of Poverty. More from Norma when we come back. And we're back with uh, Norma Young, my guest and author of We Need More Tables. So, you talk the, the the sort of subtitle of the book is navigating privilege in the face of poverty. Talk to me about that because I know you started off by saying that you sort of came from what you would describe as a as a middle class African black family. I can relate to that. Um, my my background was very sort of also middle class. Perhaps some people would say even lower middle class. I'm I feel massively about the fact that that I am as privileged, you know, and and it reminds me of of. A quote I saw a little while ago is I was, you know, I had no shoes and I was envious of people with shoes until I saw a man with no feet. And, and that, that to me is, is something very, very powerful. So let's, let's dive into the book a little bit because what, what do you hope to address by this book? I think that for me, the, the premise of the book is ultimately resolving the tensions of what to do about the guilt that so many of us feel for for what for what we have the the luxuries the the privileges the joys of our lives when we see so much need around us i for the longest while felt incredibly guilty and uh, a few years ago driven by altruistic <laughs> naivety decided to quit a job that I really, really enjoyed. At the time, I was features editor for Oprah magazine and uh, decided to quit my job and moved from Johannesburg to Cape Town to go work for an NGO. 
I had noble intentions, but that year ended up being incredibly tough because I had these uh, naive, grand expectations of making an impact and that I was going to be part of the change that I wanted to see and that I was going to be able to really play my part. And the reality was that it takes a lot more than a single year to be able to to make a concerted difference. And so I came back from that one year somewhat sobered by the, the realities of the social development sector, but then feeling still more guilty. And in writing the book and in doing all the research, it's an attempt to figure out why I mustn't vacillate between these two extremes, that the solution isn't giving up all of, you know, at that time I gave up a, a decent, stable, professional job to take a, a severe salary cut and uh, work in a sector that I knew very little about and uh, in the education space that I also knew very little about. So I now in hindsight know that that's not the extreme that the majority of us need to pursue but at the same time we also can't be entirely fully self-serving and enjoy all of the luxuries and follow all of our whims and indulge in anything and everything that we can access so the book is a template a resource guide a toolbox on how to find whatever each individual's version of the middle ground is going to be between these two extremes. It's premised on three actions, and these three actions are thinking justly, living simply, and giving generously. And my proposition is that if we, the privileged, think justly, live simply, and give generously, we can make really clear, marked inroads towards alleviating poverty. When I read that part, that, that uh, you know, thinking justly, living simply, giving generously, it struck a chord. And, and, and it also struck me as, but, but hang on, this is, this is something that should be inbred in all South Africans. And yet it's not. You, you gave some, some uh, statistics about the difference between, you know, a, a normal sort of wage worker living on, on minimum wage. Um, and then CEOs of some companies. And, and I, when I read that, I thought, you know what, I just, I actually don't have, don't have words for it. Because when you think what the guys at the top are earning and what the people at the bottom are doing in order just to get by, it's, it's a scary, scary thing to do. And, you know, living justly, give me, give me, because you've got in the book, you've got a lot of, you use stories and, and, you know, uh, stories from sort of African mythology, indigenous tales. It's an amazing kind of way that you put it together. But this book has clearly been well researched and well thought out. So take me through the first little bit. Why do we need to worry about thinking justly? So I think that uh, for me, the journey began in understanding why my previous attempts to assuage my guilt were self-serving rather than actually addressing the real issues of poverty and self-serving in the sense that it was really more about assuaging my guilt, about making myself feel better, about giving myself 
a pass to turn a blind eye because then I could say, well, at least I donate X amount and at least I cleaned out my closet and uh, gave away all the clothes that don't fit me anymore, that I don't like anymore. I was trying to play those sorts of games. And as I started committedly trying to figure out what am I going to do about the fact that I have family members and neighbors both here in Johannesburg and in my family home, Claremont, who have basic needs that aren't yet met. What am I going to do about that fact, about the fact that uh, me donating 10 rand to, you know, uh, the, the, the tin box at the checkout till when I'm grocery shopping doesn't really make enough of a marked difference. I realized that part of the issue was in how I viewed myself and in how I viewed the poor. And that first section of thinking justly is about setting a, a healthier, better, more nuanced worldview because once we, we see the world and we see our position in it, and we see the position of the poor in a more realistic light and in a more forgiving and understanding and compassionate light, then all the other actions can follow from that understanding. So one of the things that was really important for me was to understand and acknowledge my privilege. And in some ways, this was easy for me, and in other ways, it wasn't. I am a black South African who comes from a regular black middle-class family. But I have had some incredible privileges, such as being able to get 12 years of private school education. That has meant uh, I have an accent, for example, that has opened career opportunities for me because that's how the world is structured. It's meant that I had a great education and therefore qualified for mostly, you know, any courses and uh, any degrees, a lot of degrees of my choice when it came to pursuing tertiary studies. In many ways, I was privileged, but it took, it took a while for me to recognize this because there have always been people who were richer than me. There have always been people who had more opportunities than me. And getting to the stage of recognizing and acknowledging my privilege helped me to understand that so much of what I have accessed has not been because I worked for it. And that's ostensibly the, the premise of, of privilege. It's uh, what social psychologists and experts often describe as having a, a gust or a burst of wind to your back where you, you don't have to work as hard as some other people or opportunities and uh, doors are, are blown open for you whereas other people might need to knock and break down some of those doors in order to, to get access. So starting off the book with those sorts of acknowledgements such as understanding and recognizing privilege, another really important learning for me was this idea of ending the myth of hard work that often we think of and sometimes say to the lesser privileged that they can work themselves out of poverty. I definitely have fallen into the trap of that thinking that if so-and-so could just work harder, 
they'd be able to earn more and in earning more no longer classify as poor. And the reality is that so many people in our country work inordinately long hours and sometimes even in physically taxing work. And for all of that endeavor, for all of that effort, their salaries are not commensurate with what they've put in. And no amount of hard work is going to be able to work them out of poverty because they are compensated so poorly for the work that they put in. Recognizing that was really important for me to the idea of thinking justly because understanding that uh, people are poor often because of structural injustices, because minimum wage has been set at a level that doesn't afford people the means to to get the basics of life. With minimum wage, you often can't afford healthcare, can't afford medical aid. On a minimum wage salary, you sometimes aren't able to afford to build yourself a home that has solid structures. You, uh, on a minimum wage salary, sometimes can't afford to buy nutritious food. And recognizing all of that was really important because when we, we see some of the structural injustices and some of the advantages created by society that favor some individuals over others, then our actions of redress can start from that understanding rather than placing the bulk of responsibility on the poor to end their own poverty. And this is this is what fascinates me because if if we look at our country and it, it does have a horrific history, there's no getting away from it. There, there isn't any, you know. And I know a lot of people and and people that I know have gone, well, you know what, um, you know, the the ANC came into power. We have a majority government. It's their job to sort it out. And well, it hasn't worked. Number one. Number two, there there is. There's almost a case of, of, you know, that ignorance is bliss. Because if, if I think that everything's okay and, and I don't look too closely at the world around me, then, you know, I don't have to feel too bad. And, and what interests me is that this, this idea of privilege is, is filtering through. It's not just, we're not just going, oh, it's, it's white privilege anymore. It's privilege across the board where, where some are privileged and some are not. And I think at this time in our, in our society, in our country, you know, we, we've seen what's happening overseas. We've seen the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I mean, the, the storm that it's caused in, in a first world country that is supposedly a democratic country goes, but hang on now. We actually haven't addressed any of these issues. And you, you come up with, with, with a really, it's a positive way because in your writing and even in speaking to you, I don't sense a resentment of the past. I sense that this is where we are. How do we go about addressing that? Am I correct there? Uh, yes and no. So part of the tension for me has been living in this duality. I uh, went to a school where I was in the majority of black uh, students and uh, in my working career have been at some points in the minority of uh, black colleagues and uh, and so i am 
very aware and have first-hand experiences and heartbreaks and pains about our, our country's history. I've lived in South Africa as a black South African and I was born before the end of apartheid. And so I am still, you know, living uh, in in the aftermath of apartheid. But at the same time, I have had incredible, wonderful privileges stemming from how my family was set up. One of the things that uh, I learned in my research around privilege is that even coming from a two-parent household is a privilege. I grew up with uh, my mum and my dad and gran, and then later on uh, siblings. But even that, just having a, a stable family home is, is an advantage that helped with my social and mental and psychological development. And so I recognize my privilege, but at the same time, see how the, the, the past isn't entirely the past. So many people remain poor and disenfranchised and underprivileged, lesser privileged because of our country's history. I do, however, for, for all of the realities that I acknowledge and the hurts and the pains that I carry as a black South African, have a whole lot of hope still for, for our country. I'm certainly not throwing in the towel or, uh, you know, <laughs> wanting to immigrate just yet because my black life matters and the the black lives of my life loved ones matter and the black lives of my relatives and colleagues and neighbors matter and i i hope through my life and through the work of this book that we can make some inroads into redressing the imbalances of our country and the reality is that Amongst those of us who consider ourselves privileged, the the bulk falls along racial lines. And um, I hope that both black and white South Africans can make serious inroads in addressing and redressing this very juncture that we find ourselves at as a country. Wonderful stuff. My special guest is Norma Young. She is the author of We Need More Tables, Navigating Privilege in the Face of Poverty. This is What's Involved. More from Norma when we come back. And we're back with Norma Young, my special guest. Norma, we in, in, just before the break, we were talking about uh, the way the book is divided, the first sort of part of it being thinking justly. The second part, though, living simply. And again, these these words are... They're not fancy words. They're not, they're, they're not ambiguous words. And they are, you know, living simply. It's, but it's, it's way easier said than done. Talk, talk me through a little bit about the concept of living simply. The idea behind living simply was that in order to address poverty, one of the significant steps that we can take is reducing the gap between the haves and the haves not. And I have, in the process of researching this book, have learned that it's not to, or the, the, one of the better solutions is for me to reduce my, uh, maybe hoarding <laughs> tendencies 
rather than to give an endless amount of stuff away because often I'm just giving away while I'm accumulating more and I'm giving away and accumulating more and it's just a revolving door of consumption. In now realizing that uh, by living simply, I can actually free up more more resources to give endlessly. That not only means those in need are getting more, but that I am not moving myself further and further along this wealth continuum, this acquisition continuum, where some people are still trying to access the basics. Living simply means that instead of uh, me, for example, trading in a vehicle that works really well, just because it's quote-unquote trade in time, I decide to keep that car. And with the, the surplus money, the money that I've saved from not upgrading my car, I can then pay someone in my employ a better wage. Uh, let's say I might have saved uh, 1,500 Rand from not upgrading to, to a better, fancier, faster, newer model car. That 1,500 Rand, I can then redirect towards a domestic worker, a gardener, secretary, a junior marketing manager in my company or, or whomever it is. And that 1,500 Rand can often go towards meeting basic needs. For someone who's a low-income worker, 1,500 rand doesn't go towards luxuries. It often goes towards, uh, let's actually get a new roof for the house so that uh, we don't have to use buckets to catch the leaks when it's raining. Or, you know, a, a member of our family has really been struggling with their health. With this 1,500 rand, we might be able to get them to see a medical specialist and then be able to buy whatever medication is written out for their script. I then hold those two uh, expenditures of 1,500 Rand in intention. And I see that for me, continuing to drive my currently perfectly working vehicle is doable. It's manageable. It's not a massive sacrifice. That choice to live simply means that someone else can get the basics of life, can safeguard their health, uh, get a home that's a little bit more of a solid structure. And that's ostensibly the idea of living simply, not that we must uh, you know, donate our surplus and our excesses to the poor, but that we must curb our excesses so that we have more to, to give to the poor. It's, it's, it's very, very interesting and very sound principle, but as as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I I totally 100% agree because when you look at some of the wages people have paid, it's ridiculous and the disparities as well. But then, you know, I'm hearing those voices in the background going, yes, but we've worked hard for our money. Why do we want to give it away? Why must we do this? And then on the other hand, there's people that go, well, I donate X amount to X, Y, and Z charities, so so that's enough. But in my opinion, there's a very, very big difference between a hand out and a hand up. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I have said those very things to myself or in conversations uh, with people or even muttering uh, to myself at a traffic light where uh, 
you know, a beggar was hoping to get a few coins from me. Those have been my very sentiments. I now know better and because I know better, try to do better and in this book have a collection of ideas and suggestions that people can assess for themselves uh, and figure out what what measures are applicable to their lives. I have no interest in giving away all of the the aspects of my life that I enjoy. I would like to maintain a vehicle, for example, and so I, I work hard so that I can afford to have a car. It is more convenient to be able to drive. For me, the big understanding has been luxuries versus basic needs. And once I understood that, it, it really has helped guide me in how in how I interact with and, and respond to the needs of the poor because basic needs versus luxuries for me is pretty clear that if I can help an individual, a loved one, someone I know, someone in my community get access to basic resources, I can definitely forfeit getting new couches. I can hold on to my existing couches. I can hold on to my existing uh, washing machine and not go and get uh, an upgraded washing machine. I can forfeit uh, some of these luxuries and extravagances and joys so that an individual can get access to a basic need uh, and be able to, to carve for themselves a decent, better quality, basic life. And to your point about hand up and hand out, I think we also, in learning about uh, philanthropy, have also realized that sometimes we, the philanthropists and the givers, create a hierarchy of giving and set expectations on how the poor, those who are recipients of our altruism, must utilize the funds. And I think for me, realizing that the whomever we're giving to must still be given autonomy. We can't dictate, uh, which we often do then with the handouts. You know, uh, this is 10 rand. This is 100 rand that needs to go to X uh, means. And we don't have the right to dictate how people utilize what we give to them. And that language of hand up and hand out really helps shape how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive the people who we give, whether it's money or or resources to. Really need to make sure that it's empowering and positive and not demeaning to the poor. Absolutely. My special guest, Norma Young, we will be back uh, and wrapping it up with her, time flies when you're getting into subjects like these. Uh, when we come back, we're going to find out about the third part of the book, and it's going to be called uh, Giving Generously, that third part. When we come back, we'll find out more about uh, how Norma views giving generously. This is what's involved. And we're back with my special guest, Norma Young. Norma, to me, this book has come out at just the right time, and people need to read this book because a lot of people across the board have got so many preconceived ideas about life and about how things work. We have no idea. And I think maybe part of it is the ostrich syndrome. You know, we stick our heads in the ground, hope for the best. But 
we need to wake up to the fact that the only way that our country is going to go through meaningful change is if we can get poverty alleviation sorted out, we can help raise everybody. There's a saying, if one rises, we all rise, and we need to focus on that. Talk to me about giving generously. So, David, this is one of the parts of the book that uh, I suppose I've struggled with the most in terms of figuring out how to give, when to give, to whom to give, uh, how much to give. And so I've presented 10 suggestions of how we can give impactfully. And the idea is that individuals need to assess for themselves which ones are applicable for their life stage, for their budgets, for their their interests and uh, yeah, like where their hearts might lie. And so these suggestions for giving generously span things like offering microfinance, for example, if if you have the financial means to be able to say to an entrepreneur or someone who has uh, hopes or aspirations of working for themselves, that here is a thousand rand given to you to start a business. You might be able to go buy some stock and uh, start a small trading business of some kind. If that is a once-off amount that you can give, then that's a wonderful boon to to someone who's self-employed. Some other suggestions for me, and this in fact is, I think, the one action that if more South Africans would take, we could make some serious inroads into alleviating poverty, and that's paying a living wage. Living wage is above minimum wage, and the differentiator between the two is that minimum wage has been set to be the the most bare minimum, as the, the word suggests, that can be paid to an individual. It often is not enough to to live. And so experts are now suggesting that we, we pay a living rather than a minimum wage, because a living wage takes into account the the basics that an individual needs to survive. For example, in our country, transport costs subsume so much of most people's wages and salaries. And so if we begin calculating a a living wage, it takes into account where an individual lives and how much it costs them to get to work. The nationally prescribed minimum wage often isn't mindful of the fact that in some parts of the country, in some provinces and in some cities, because of how those areas are structured, sometimes people need to take two or three taxis in order to get to their place of employment. I once worked with a colleague here in Johannesburg who had a three-hour commute from Soweto to, to work in the northern suburbs because the bus was 400 rand cheaper than a taxi that would have been faster. And so he opted for a three-hour commute coming to work and a three-hour commute returning back home in order to save 400 rand. And that 400 rand is an amount that some of us spend uh, on lunch for two people. When you think about it like that, it it is such a wake-up call, such a stark reality. 
And I would challenge anybody that's listening, if you go, oh, well, minimum wage, that's what, that's what the government says we have to pay, we'll pay it. Do yourself a favor. Try and live on that amount of money for a month. And, and tell me how you do. Because I've tried it and I failed miserably. Because it, it, as you rightly said, Norma, it, it might be a minimum wage, but it is most certainly not a living wage. And things that we take for granted, again, you talk about, about transport. If you think about it, and, and let's, let's go. If you're one of those lucky people that has a domestic worker, you pay them a salary. Go and do yourself a favor. Find out how much it costs them to get to work and to get home. Because I think you're going to be blown away. One of the ladies that works with us, um, her transport, just her transport to get to and from work is 65 Rand a day. You know, you add that up and, and, and you look at what some people are paying. These people are ending up with, with like, there's no, in, in, in those people's lives, there is no such thing as disposable income, which is, is scary for me. I'm just thinking, I'm thinking now, Norma, we, we're sort of running out of time as uh, I always do on this show. But if you have advice uh, to somebody who's listening now, and, and what, what would a, a one piece of advice be that you would give to somebody who's listening um, and going, oh, maybe, maybe not. How do we make this a reality? And how do we, how do we get people to start giving back? For me, the, the most important and probably hopefully accessible step is a, a very small radius of influence and input. Many of us uh, know someone in need, and rather than feel overwhelmed, which I often used to feel around how we're going to address this mammoth issue of poverty, it's to choose one individual and journey alongside them. It might be, you know, a colleague at work, a lower income colleague at work. It might be someone in your employ. It might be uh, you know, someone in your neighborhood. To choose that one individual, journey alongside them, get a better idea of how they've become disenfranchised and the structural inputs that have limited their opportunities for self-development and for growth and uh, being able to to live the lives that they deserve and the lives that they hope for and then in discussion figure out how you can partner with them in starting to redress some of those and in instances where you can it might be paying a living wage if it is someone in your employ if it's someone that uh, you work with might be deciding to advocate for them at work to get more opportunities, bringing them into projects that you're working with, uh, that you're working on, get them to come alongside you uh, where their interests and skills and abilities might match your, your project needs. Making it personal rather than this massive organic problem, I think is accessible. And it also allows for opportunities for mutual engagement and mutual learning rather than this hierarchical structure of I have the money and therefore I have the knowledge of what you need to do to fix your life. I think sometimes we, we make that error 
as opposed to to just drawing alongside an individual, learning more about their lives, sharing more of your life with them doesn't necessarily mean giving up all your wealth, as I used to fear, um, but really just uh, what what do I have that I can share and what ways can I live simply so that I can give generously to this individual who I've gotten to know and hopefully gotten to love. And in that, I've recognized that they also deserve access to be able to meet their basic needs. Wonderful advice. Norma, thank you so much for, for taking the time out and, and having a chat to us. Uh, it's a brilliant book. It, it, it's a, I would say it's a mandatory read for everybody. If you're in business, if you've got a small business, whatever the case may be, get your hands on this book. It is so well read. Uh, well read, yes. <laughs> Norma's clearly well read. Uh, I'll put my false teeth back in. It is so well written. Uh, <laughs> the stories are absolutely wonderful. And and this is the kind of thing, um, you know, nation building has become cliched, but this is the kind of thing that if you go through this book and just put some of it into action, we can make a difference. We really, really can. And it's up to people like you and I to do that. Norma, where is uh, the book available? It is available both online and in bookstores. It's on Amazon and on Kobo, uh, as well as exclusive books and bargain books and take a lot and loot. People would like signed copies. They can also get from my website, normayoung.com. So N-O-R-M-A-Y-O-U-N-G.com for signed copies. Otherwise, at most national bookstores and online. Fantastic stuff. NormaYoung.com, because I'm sure people are going to want to have a chat to you as well. Uh, that's also a great way to get hold of you then. Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. Fantastic. Norma, thank you again. Uh, I wish you every success going forward. Um, this book needs to become not just a national bestseller, an international bestseller. Uh, well done for having the courage and the bravery to write this book and to express yourself the way you have. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much. I'm very encouraged by your positive feedback and thankful for the chance to have talked about these themes and topics and issues that are so pertinent for me and for so many citizens of our country. Go well. That was my special guest, Norma Young. The book is We Need More Tables, Navigating Privilege in the Face of Poverty. Do yourself a favor, as I've said many times. Go out and get it.